Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie and... Yes, Rebecca is here too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, on this fine day, this... Uh, uh, and this is Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. I, I should remind you, and probably you, Rebecca, that uh, the Radiothon is coming up yes. in June. So if you are, are listeners of Solidarity Breakfast, you know that uh, 3CR, when it does its Radiothon, it gets all of us programmers to go out there with our tins asking people to help us out so that we can go on for another year. So... Uh, Save your pennies and uh, you can ring in on the day and uh, pledge some money or you can come into the station or you can go online. There's lots of different ways of ensuring that your community radio station and your favourite program continues. (laughs) (laughs) We We told you last week. And that we went off to the Marxist conference, and we surely did. Yes. Yes, while you were eating your chocolate eggs, we went off and were stimulated by endless and varied amounts of conversation and discussion. It was very interesting, in fact. Did you find it so? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was very interesting. And we're going to share a few things. Uh, one of the late entries was a uh, a, a um a session on Julian Assange, uh, and uh, it was put together by Helen Razor. She was uh, she's a journalist. She was uh, one of the uh, main spe- um, panelists. Effectively, there were two people. It was a kind of an interview kind of arrangement, and Helen was the one who was running the show. And then there was, of course, conversation and uh, questions. Uh, and uh, we're going to kick off with. Uh, parts of that discussion, uh, reminding people why it was so important, the work that Julian Assange did. We all know that he's been taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London and the big question, of course, is that uh, are they going to allow him to be extradited to America where he is considered to be, you know, it's a bit like the comic land, really, Marvel, you know, where he's uh, Marvel and DC, where he's the arch enemy. Mm. Of uh, the, um, it's very difficult to uh, work out who is the criminal class, really, when yeah. it cut, when you look at uh, WikiLeaks. Anyway, we're going to uh, play you some of that uh, conversation. So, will we start, or do we warn them about what's what else we're going to have on? Ah, well, we're going to also hear later on uh, some uh, a part of the Tamil uh, forum that was at 
Marxism as well, which was very interesting um, reflecting on what is happening now for the Tamil people 10 years after the end of the so-called war Mm. Um, and, yeah, how they're still being oppressed by the Sri Lankan state. And it's especially uh, relevant right now as um, the last week we had um, the attacks on churches and yeah and that's um very very relevant because there's a lot of uh well even before that happened there's been a lot of talk about um counter-terrorism laws and stuff in Sri Lanka which um yeah we can go into that a bit more later Mm, interesting stuff anyway let's kick off with a bit of uh Julian Assange comrades old and new Um, you had an experience yesterday where you're in a session and there was some adorable baby comrade (laughs) who was like, Iraq war, explain that to me. Can you explain the the context in which you were, like, repelled in the gut and the mind and you were led to the demonstration against the Iraq war or the invasion of Iraq? Yeah, yeah, totally. Understanding some of this history is actually really quite important because of the fact that obviously there are you know like a lot of young people at this this conference who probably who definitely weren't around politically during the Iraq war but even um during the sort of heady years of 2010 to 2012 when WikiLeaks was sort of you know top of the media and stuff there's heaps of people here who would you know maybe barely struggle to remember that but like my first um really big protest that I went to was the Iraq war demonstration and um you know I think for anyone who lived through that period, for me it was began my process of political mm. radicalisation because it was just really obvious that this entire war was built on lies and bullshit and that actually the United States and its allies were going into this country to and would absolutely destroy it and you know wreak havoc on the population there, essentially for their own imperialist interests, for you know trying to... Uh, impose themselves uh, on the world to reshape the Middle East and their image and so on. And then the war went ahead in spite of the fact that there were these uh, huge uh, protests. But the war continued to be quite unpopular throughout and uh, actually got quite a lot more unpopular as the war went on. But this is in particular contexts, though. Like, let's not forget that the Washington Post and a lot of Australian media, I mean, uh, was... um, Uh, the headline um, in the Washington Post. You might remember it from the film The Post, um, in which Daniel Ellsberg is a hero for being a whistleblower. Um, You know, a man who supports Assange um, Mm. irrefutably. So their, their big editorial is irrefutable. Like, you could see, and so many people could see, that the performance that Colin Powell was coerced into doing... Um, which is like, hmm, well, we heard some stuff and here's a PowerPoint demonstration of it. Um, uh, it looked to some of us as though, oh, jeez, oh, come on. Yeah, you know? yeah. But to many people, it didn't. To many people, it was like, oh, well, WMD, oh. Yeah. Ooh. Well, I mean, that's true. Um, and particularly in, like, in the United States, I know that support for the war was much higher at the start of the war. But in Australia, the majority of people never actually supported the war. And I think that's really important to, to remember, which is that even from the outset, that 
a lot of people were very mm. skeptical about the reasons going in. It was partly that like the fucking Colin Powell thing was so transparently bullshit. Like everyone who saw it could see that there's they had no idea. What I don't think. They, I, I mean, I don't think uh, Colin Powell's actually slept in fifteen years. As, a result. <laughs> as, as the war got went on, like it was just so apparent that this was just a brutal, horrible war, and towards the Iraqi people particularly, like. Fallujah and the campaign against Fallujah is something that I will never forget where they, you know, literally rained down, you know, white phosphorus and Mark 77, which is sort of like napalm, um, on a civilian population. Like white phosphorus sticks to human skin and it burns and burns and burns. It's almost impossible to stop burning. Um, and uh, people die from multiple organ failure because it poisons their body and all this sort of stuff. And this was just... This was just the news, you know. This was this was being rained down on a civilian population, and this was just a day in sort of day out kind of <coughs> barbarity that you started to see in Iraq. And in it, on top of that, there were the sort of increased um, deaths of soldiers. You yeah. know, the the number of people who went back in body bags to the United States and Britain and so on. And it was so intense that even in the context in Australia of the the slow burn of is Islamophobia. Um, so even within that context, even within all of the strategic lies of Tampa, uh, you, you know, even mm. within this, there were very even liberal people mm, mm. like out in the street. And it's so easy for us yeah. to, uh, you know, forget how recently large numbers of people were mobilised. Even my mum was like, well, I'm going to go over there and take those bloody kitties to school. This is not on. Yeah, and and right. so this is, it's like, okay, so even people who have um, suspicion of yeah. Islam, even people, you know, it was just like people were, and this is why I, you know, want to talk, you know, I thought that that was a good departure point because um, it was a departure point for so many. And I think one of the things about it is that, like, it's does this process where people start, questioning things that the powers that be sort of say about, you know, the world in general and how things operate and so on, because they, the lies are just so transparent. Like, it's just, you know, everyone knew this was not about weapons of mass destruction. Um, everyone, and towards the end, they started talking about, more openly about regime change, which in some ways is what it was partly more about, you know, making uh, the regime more pliant to US interests and so on. And not necessarily do people have a theoretical framework to understand all of this, um, but they're feeling like things are shit. Yeah. You know, there's there's a whole lot of shit going on, and there yeah. was a whole lot of shit going on. And you see that kind of around the Occupy stuff, which is... To 2011. 2011, yeah, yeah, where there's huge protests that started in the United States, and then they sort of spread around a lot of the, the Western world. You know, and that, that kind of really simple but effective, I think, slogan, which is such a encapsulation it's like we are the 99% they are the 1% which is just like whatever you know the percentages might be a bit off but it's more the thing <laughs> of like you know there is us and there is them and we have kind of counterposed interests and I think that's important because it happens at the time that um, some of the most famous WikiLeaks leaks mm. um, are published so like the, the um, Afghan war diaries and the Iraq war logs are both published in 2010 I think yeah and, and I mean WikiLeaks has been published uh publishing since you know 2006, 2006 but it's it's yeah. kind of like a marginal interest it's just you know I mean people can be so 
cynical, including yeah. ourselves. So there's that, you know, Lacanian Marxist thing where it's like, I know, but still. And there's some value in accepting that idea. Like, I know that they do terrible things, but but still, of course, I have to live. But particularly the collateral murder video, which mm. I'm sure you've all seen, right? Or not seen because you didn't want to send yourself mad, right? It's different. It's not just, I know, but still. It's like... There's like that one point in the video where um, a van stops to sort of render assistance, pick up bodies, um, and they shoot him, the driver, from the helicopter. And one of them laughs and says, ha, you know, like, look at those dead bastards. And I think that that really, really encapsulates the sort of cold, calculating, brutal... Um, occupation in Iraq. Yeah, the, 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 you yeah. know, and the alienation that, you know, uh, you, you have to um, evacuate yourself of your last yeah. human yeah. shred to do that kind of work, right? I mean, the liberal response might be, oh, well, they're just bad people and if they were just more compassionate, mm. there is nothing left yeah. of your compassion. How are you going to kill people unless you have that yeah, idea? Absolutely. That's all in the Iraq War, di- uh, war logs, I think. Like it's sort of one of the things about them is that they paint this picture of just this is, you know, routine brutality. This is just what happens on a day to day basis in Iraq. That in the process of like um, occupation and trying to um, reshape um, the Middle East in the interests of the United States, that this involves people completely dehumanising the Iraqi people, like the the Mm. occupiers dehumanising the Iraqi people. And so the war logs are just this, you know, it's a litany of abuses. It's the fact that every, basically every civilian man of fighting age was categorised as an enemy combatant when they killed them. You know, this kind of, these horrors, the fact that they um, shot resistors who were clearly trying to surrender, you know, all this kind of stuff is just, you know, it's... Yes, and it's, you know, like whatever, again, your theoretical framework, you feel it in your gut. Yeah, yeah. And um, then, you know, the other thing to sort of like place it back within an explicitly Marxist framework Mm. is that, you know, explicitly said that one, you know, cannot know the reasons for something occurring, Mm. like uh, uh, the idea and the material they, 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 they interweave. And the Iraq war in particular is a moment of military crisis because the propaganda, as you've already said, was not very good. Mm, mm. And the reason that it was not very good is because no international relations theorist can fully explain why that invasion happened. Like, was it, you know, just the sort of like, you know, ongoing um, dominance Mm. of um, uh, the United States? Was it Halliburton? Was it oil? Was it just that, um, you know, uh, um, some kind of like, um, you know, uh, Oedipal Avenger that, um, uh, that, that GW was being for daddy? Um, was it Sam Huntington's clash of civilizations? Yes, 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 no one knows. Yeah. And because there was all of these little kind of like, it was never justified because it couldn't be. No one yeah. knew why it was being done. And to see that cynicism in that video for a state actor not even being sure about why it was doing this mm. thing. I mean, we know, you know, you can explain it simply or um, in, in many, many ways. And it's not only that you see these people turning into sort of bots, but like the people doing the killing, but 
they thought that it was okay to record it. Why would somebody at some point not think this can't ever be seen? One of the horrors that people felt uh, about the death camps was the Nazis took pictures, the Nazis mm, documented mm. this. They had, like, even at the elite level, they had no they response. It okay. Yeah, it's like you can take, it's a snuff film yeah. and it's okay to keep a snuff film. And that's the context in which we saw it because it's their snuff film. And I think apart from the content, it's the framing. I feel that Chelsea Manning did, uh, the alleged leaker, there's no evidence, did what a billion Noam Chomsky's could not do. This is framed, this is framed, this is framed. So you know how people will be like, oh, I saw that on telly, so it must be the truth. Um, rule of law, rule of law. There is no way you could have seen that and not known how it was framed. Yeah. So it's like internal propaganda almost. Like this is how they talk to each other. Yeah. This is an internal communications. It cannot be understood by any person who sees it in any other way. Yeah. And this is the propaganda that they give to themselves. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and we're listening to a conversation that was had at Marxism around Julian Assange and uh, it's Helen Razor, the inestimable Helen Razor and uh, they're giving backgrounds for people to remember actually where WikiLeaks fits into our history and why Julian Assange's bad habits probably are less important than the work that he's been part of. So let's listen to the uh, a little bit more. I think one of the key things is this is just part of a litany of abuses and it's part of that process that when you're justifying an occupation, you, you have to kind of justify the brutality to yourself as an occupier that you're imposing on these people, oh. you know, like, and how do you do that except for by just treating them as things that you can shoot like they're... they're like targets, like their sport. Um, but also I think there's a kind of contradictory thing as well because actually when you look at some of the other thing, like uh, the other things that were in the leagues, they also indicate that they kind of knew that, you know, they had to try and cover up what they were doing. It's like there's this one story from the um, Afghan war diaries where um, a group of Marines are sort of spooked by a nearby suicide mm. bombing and they race off down a highway, I think it's about six miles, and they just shoot indiscriminately as they go. And they shoot, you know, uh, teenage girls working in fields. They, par- mm. they shoot people in oncoming mm. vehicles. Um, they shoot old men walking down the road. They kill something like 14 people and they wound mm. huge numbers. And then when they write up the official report, they mention none of it. Mm. They don't... And so they sort of know that, like... There's a contradictory thing where, like, on the one hand, you have this absolute dehumanisation of people that means that they can do this, and in some circumstances they do record it, and then in others they know that they have to hush it up and, you know, keep it hidden because they don't want people to know what is going on um, in these places. So, So. I mean, this was, um, you know... But this is not the only uh, release by WikiLeaks, of course, but this is the release that... It's not a, you know great hacker of history story it's not a great journalist of history story but this is a moment and I don't stand with Assange because of the greatness of that moment but to understand it within the context of 
your life, your life, um, what conversations, what, what understandings that made possible, it being such a big and an ongoing yeah. uh, war on Islam itself because it did get very just like plain old racist as well. 25 years since Sam Huntington wrote that, like the clash of civilizations, which was very influential. We can't have Muslims in the mm. world because they're just not compatible. Um, sorry, you know, to the, you know, uh, comrade here from ASIO, like you may not have that <laughs> understanding. It is a piece of racist shit. Um, uh, it, it's not just because they changed the world, but nor is it just because this is an assault on journalism, because as far as I'm concerned, journalism can get... So it's not just about journalism. We don't have to, in this context, have yeah. that conversation. I could go through with you all of the other um, uh, releases um, by WikiLeaks, how they've been used in individual struggles. Mm. Um, I could uh, give you a justification for the Podesta files. I do think that they're a very important document. They do not frame the event so powerfully as collateral murder did. But, you know, you can go ha, ha, ha at the Podesta files. But there is a very good rationale for publishing these things. Again, yeah. you know, we need to uh, remind each other. Uh, everyone that WikiLeaks does not just info dump on the inter internet. Mm. The New York Times editor actually does dare to stand with mm. WikiLeaks. You know, first they, you know, first they came for the people that Peter Grester didn't like, and then they came for the New York <laughs> Times. So there's so many releases of uh, not of such kind of like impact, mm. um, but also internal communications, such as um, you know the, the the Haiti disaster, which America yeah. did so much for. You know, when you read that the ambassador in Port-au-Prince. Capital of Haiti, right? Um, uh, uh, the U.S. ambassador, you know, writes to uh, the, the the cable to the State Department um, <laughs> while people are still dying. You know, the 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 whatever natural disaster it was, what was it earthquake, tsunami, earthquake. whatever? It was like, like Haiti's been the the ambassador writes to the State Department. The gold rush is on, right? The yeah. gold rush is on. This is like you know the hey Halliburton. You know, it's like we didn't even have to like actually shoot these people. We're open for business. But yeah. and so to see how power talks to itself, mm. and you know, there are so many incidents where you know people in in particular um, uh, struggles, legal cases, um, workers have used stuff that is on WikiLeaks, which again is curated, you know, and is volunteer. Uh, Labor has been very, very powerful in individual struggles, in individual cases, and it's, it's. I don't even want to have the conversation about like journalism because it's like, like journalism isn't a standard. This is kind of crucial in actually understanding why they went after Assange and why they did it in such a ferocious way. Like people probably, the younger people in the room probably don't have much of a memory of this, but it was like. There was this period where it was intense, where they went after Assange. Oh, my like, God. There were, you know, politicians around the world, including in Australia, you know, calling for him to be arrested, to be indicted. Um, they gathered a grand jury to put together a, an indictment. Sarah Palin, like, people probably... Again, young people probably don't remember her, but she was kind of like a mini-Trump, essentially. She called for his assassination at one point. So this was a pretty frenzied and rabid attack on, on Assange. Gillard was, had one or two things to say. Yes, she sure did. 
it, it comes from the sort of more liberal and social democratic parties as well. So it's the Democrats in the United States and it's the Labor Party here who, who go on about it. But, like, the reason that this happened, I think, is because actually understanding that, well, they were revealing the secrets that the rich and the powerful did not want people to see. They did not want them to see the blood on their perfectly manicured hands. They did not want them to know these secrets, you know. And it's Helen's right, like, it's about a range of things, like the Icelandic banking sector and all this kind of stuff. There's just a wide range of stuff that WikiLeaks put puts out into the, the public domain, which is about <coughs> just exposing all the crap and the cynicism that goes behind, like, the ideology that mm -hmm. we're fed about why they do things and all this kind of stuff. And so it's actually, like, you know, when you reveal those secrets, you become a target. And that's why they went after yeah. Assange. That's why they went after <coughs> Snowden, after Chelsea Manning. Um, and in a variety of ways, it's like there's this general repression and, um, you know, clamping down on whistleblowers and people who speak the truth you know, then and now today. It's like, well, if you're a doctor on Manus Island or Nauru, you can't speak about what you see there publicly. You can't speak about the abuse of children, you know? I actually think that there's sort of... There's been a certain strategic thing in waiting as well because, like, there was popular support for Assange back in 2011, 2012, you know, that sort of era. Like, people were outraged that they were going after him, mm. that, you know, that um, people wanted to, you know, stop it and whatever. But, you know, you wait for long enough that people sort of forget. You run this extended smear campaign about his dirty socks and how he's a bad house guest, and that's why the Ecuadorian <laughs> embassy has to, like, revoke oh, his asylum. By the way, um, the pussy, status, the pussy like cat, whose real name is Bruce, is fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it is important. Like, he actually liked that cat, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, the pussy cat has new mummy and mummy. Because it's so weird, like, you know, when you think about the things that they write about Assange, is that they're so thingy irrelevant. Like, who cares if he skateboards in the bloody Ecuadorian embassy? Like, no one actually talks about these days what Assange did and why that's important and why they're after him. They all talk about, like, how he used to leave half-eaten dishes on the, the bench. It's like, this is a reason why you should revoke someone's refugee status or whatever. Like, it's, like, absolute crap. But it's been part of this general, like, process of trying to marginalise him within the sort of um, dominant discourses um, around the question, so... Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of comrades here would have copped that shit. I mean, you know, they, you, one can be made to look ridiculous. Mm. I mean, I try to get in early and be ridiculous anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, I mean, you know, this year, I like, what would you know? You're a commie, you're a alt, you're yeah. irrelevant, you're a lunatic. I mean, come on, could you come up with something new, like, in history, just to entertain me? Like, yeah. could you think of a new insult? I yeah. mean, seriously, it's just been... But the interesting thing that you may have found also is that people willingly um, acquire um, and produce, like, a, a surplus um, of loathing for these figures themselves, people you know, like... And I've got this new argument about, like, why he's bad... And um, people that are quite progressive, even call themselves leftist, even call themselves mm. socialist sometimes. Yeah, I just don't think that, like, leaving dirty dishes on a, a sink is, like, a reason to, like, extradite mm -hmm. someone to the United States for, for you know, 
you know, their role in leaking some very important documents. But I think that's the thing that is really important to remember. It's not like the dirty dishes. It's the it's the leaks. It's the it's collateral murder. It's um, the Afghan war logs. It's the litany of abuses, of horrors, of you know all the crap, all the cynicism, all the lies, and what the United States did to people in those countries and in Guantanamo Bay and all those things. That's the thing that is actually important and that needs defending. Like the fact that there are people who are out there who are brave enough to like risk their lives. Who, who are willing to go to prison potentially for decades because they see some injustice in the world and they want people to know. They want to bring the darkness into the light and they want people to see that so that they understand as well. And I think that's the reason why you have to defend Assange. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring The Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange a 3CR supporter. Your own solidarity breakfast with Annie Ren, Rebecca, sorry, <laughs> too many uh, letters coming out of my mouth at the same time. They obviously, uh, that event is on on the same day as the voting and federal election. So they obviously have got better things to do with yeah. their time <laughs> than follow the results on the tally. Yes. Uh, and in the studio, we've got Marcus Harrington. G'day, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for having me here today. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've got you in the studio because uh, you've been involved in uh, the campaigns around the uh, fire that uh, uh, happened out at Campbell Field uh, quite recently. Um, Can you give us an update about what's been going on, this toxic fire that's uh, been undermining the security of the people out in the outer suburbs? Yeah, well, the fire on uh, Friday, April the 5th, was the fourth toxic chemical fire in the area in three years, so it's an ongoing annual event. Yeah. And yeah, the residents have had enough and they've stepped up the campaign just a couple of days later. We had the rally at outside the uh, council meeting before the council meeting and uh, basically told told the Hume City Council, yeah, we've had enough and it's time for urgent action, time for the state government to step up to the plate and do something to yeah, prevent any further fires happening because it's just a time bomb out in the city of Hume in Broadmeadows in the north and Again, on Anzac Day, we saw two further fires, one in Broadmeadows again, one in Footscray of uh, more recycling uh, places going up in flames. Lucky they were contained by the uh, well-skilled firefighters on these occasions, but history tells us there's going to be more toxic chemical fires. So, yeah, the campaign's ramping up. Now, we put let's get it straight in people's minds. It, it's the uh, state government that is uh, in control, supposedly, in inverted commas, in control of the uh, uh, regulations that relate to what goes on in terms of 
recycling and the storage of chemicals. Now, the particular fire out in Campbellfield, the the firefighters found that they didn't even know what was actually burning. No, yeah, chemicals were stored illegally. uh, Just two weeks prior, the EPA visited that particular factory, Bradbury Industrial Services, and found they were in breach of their licence. The licence was suspended. The EPA went back the day, the very day before the fire, and there was 450,000 litres of chemicals. Like you said, any unknown what was there, that was yeah more than double what they should have had, even though their licence was suspended. The EPA had powers to step in, clean the site up. Uh, did they? Did they have? Uh, because according to uh, what the from the, the guy from the EPA seemed seemed to think at that community meeting that was held on the Saturday, they say you know uh, someone reported to me that, and you you'll be able to tell me that the EPA guys seemed to be a bit shocked at public reaction. To because he was saying, you know, we did the most extreme thing that we could do. We told them that they were bad. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that, that they didn't do anything. They didn't actually do anything Take any like actions. they didn't. They didn't close Physical the place actions. down. They didn't yeah. create a, a system for removal. They didn't then uh, book the people for doing it. Find them or anything. Yeah, that seems they made an observation. Yeah, and they, made and they, they walked away when yeah. uh, on that Thursday That's when they weird. saw they had yeah. four hundred and fifty thousand litres of toxic chemicals. They had the chance to clean the site up then. And what did we see the next day? The site go up in flames. Uh, two workers end up in hospital. So I mean, where's the workers? Uh, the safety for workers. Where's the safety for the community? I mean, uh, just... Where's the working system? That's what people should actually be thinking about. I mean, they they expose this operation which is incompetent and dangerous but there is no follow-up yeah well it seems yeah companies are given more rights than what yeah. workers are or what the local community in broad meadows in the city of hume i mean we live in a situation companies have more rights where they're getting away with these things and they know they can get away with it so they, they keep doing it i mean until we see tougher penalties jail sentences for company directors and management or harsh penalties. I mean, nothing's going to change. So, yeah, we're calling on the state government, as is the firefighters' union, that tougher penalties need to be imposed. The regulators need to be obviously given greater resources and greater power. I mean, there needs to be a yeah, full-scale audit investigation process constantly monitored. It's interesting because it seems to be about time frames. I mean... Uh, I don't know how long, and I, when I was speaking to some people out there, uh, they live in those areas and they've lived there for a long time and they were saying that uh, whenever they talk about these fires on the mainstream news, they're always talking about this industrial, uh, these industrial suburbs and stuff, except, of course, people live across the road from yeah. these places. Yeah. I mean, people are misunderstanding if they think that it's not affecting ordinary people in their ordinary lives. Yeah, and if only the state government had the same passion as what they showed yesterday, when uh, on Thursday rather, when a bunch of rich people got sick at the football. I mean, you would have thought it was a state of emergency. The health department uh, fronting a press conference talking about a bunch of people that got sick at the footy. I mean, Eddie Maguire, the, he proclaims that he's from Broadmeadows and there he is um, talking about what you would have thought was a national emergency. I mean, where was the response when 
toxic chemicals were being showered on the people of uh, Broadmeadows. Yeah. I mean, where was the response then? And also the ongoing effects of that, like uh, people aren't really talking after like, because of the twenty-four hour news cycle and and all of this. Um, yeah, the story goes away pretty quickly, even though I'm sure those chemicals and like what they did with the waste afterwards, even the waste from the fire and whatever extinguisher mm. um, they used to put the fire out, is still having an impact in the um, in the community, like in the waterways and all the. Which actually yeah. leads to the next – well, it is. The waterways have mm. become – it's already been documented that the waterways are polluted. Yeah. But also another thing that's really interesting, and this is similar to what really happened down in the fire at um, – Tottenham? And, and, uh, well, no, yeah. j- uh, at uh, down near Morwell when there was some mm. fires down yes, there. Yes, yes. How slow – the uh, they are at actually collecting data about the pe- the health of people within the community because mm. whenever you're doing something like this, uh, you have to have long term studies yeah. into the way people are being affected by these these things. Now, if you don't do those studies, and it might take a long time to get the results, if you don't do those studies, if you don't invest in them, then of course, all the health effects are ignored, Yeah. right? Yeah. So have they started doing anything like that? Has anybody, you know, one of the universities decided, a PhD student decided that they're going to do this study because the government's given them the money to do it? Oh, it's one of the things I've called on the uh, local and state government to implement a health study similar to the Morwell, mm. the Morwell Health Study file and that fire in 2014 where a survey was taken of 4,000 uh, residents in that area around yeah. the Hazelwood mine, I think it was, and they yeah. were forced to do that. Mm. Yeah, it um, wasn't. It wasn't something that they were they were happy to do to begin with. So yeah, yeah we're calling on yeah, the state government to implement that survey, so we we can see uh, the the health impacts mm. that have occurred. Because yeah, like I said, four fires in three years. More. This is yeah, three and a half years on now, and there's been a fire year in year out. So that's one of the things we're calling for, and. Uh, there's going to be yes. a um, the most interesting thing, I guess, is that it's all built around community response, isn't yeah. it? How people feel who live out there and their ownership of their community. What's going on in that space? Um, yeah, well, the rally, the residents really stepped up and uh, put the local councils on notice that it's time to do something. Like the common theme was it wouldn't happen in Turak, it wouldn't happen in Brighton, yeah. but the the working class people in the city of Hume are supposed to cop it, but um. Residents have, yeah. They're getting organised and united and there's going to be a meeting uh, this Monday, April the 29th for the uh, Hume uh, Toxics Network and it's going to be an organising meeting, the very first meeting, so a meeting to, I suppose, brainstorm ideas and work out a a way forward, a campaign forward. So that's going to be, yeah, on Monday, April the 29th at the Hume Global Learning Centre. Which is the new name for the town hall. Uh, the Global Learning Centre. It's a name for a for a library, yeah, a long and oh, it's the it's the name yeah. for the library. I knew there was a, it was a sort of a, um, yeah, it's it's sort of a, a bit similar to. I'm not really having a go at them, but it's a it's a uh, similar to this uh, Frank Maguire, the local members' uh, idea of uh, a, a big change for Wood Meadows. The uh, what is it? Postcode of Hope. Yeah, postcode of hope. I I call it postcodes of smoke. 
<laughs> because it's sort of like this yeah. idea that, you know, it's because people don't uh, have a go or that they don't believe in themselves that uh, they're in this poorless state. So we're going to have this publicity campaign, you know, uh, which, you know. Mm. Well, the state government needs to step up and act. They need to clean uh, clean these uh, illegally stored chemical waste dumps. They need to clean the area up. And once they do that, maybe businesses will start to move into the area and relocate or set up business. Mm. But if you're a business, why would you want to set up in the city of Hume when the chances are you're going to be setting up next to a, an illegal toxic waste dump? Which is what actually did happen to quite a few businesses who were uh, um, set up outside, around, near that fire. Mm. They were closed down. Can I ask also how are the uh, men that were in hospital, who were hospitalised? Um, the workers? Yeah, the workers. Yeah, there were two, I believe, yeah, Tamil refugees who were yeah. hospitalised. I believe one is still in hospital. Okay, yeah. But, yeah, the Migrant Workers Centre at Trades Hall and the Australian mm. Workers Union have been yeah, doing some good work yeah. with those workers in the Bradbury um, factory. And, mm. and, yeah, the Australian Workers Union, the United Firefighters Union, Peter Marshall, yeah, they've stepped up and joined in the campaign calling on yeah, tough penalties. Like the firefighters have also been impacted yeah. in these two yeah. fires in Tottenham and uh, Campbellfield this year where the union has reported um, firefighters becoming ill with headaches, nosebleeds yes. and that sort of stuff. So this is affecting, yeah, more than the residents in the area, more than the workers. But, mm. you know, the firefighters who provide the first line of defence and uh, going into facilities, that they don't know what's in there. So yeah. they're putting their yeah, life on the, on the line yeah. to protect the community. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, the government, all government, all levels of government need to step up and implement proper proper plans because the plans they've implemented over the last three years clearly aren't working. Yeah. I mean, why would you continue to implement a plan that's failing the people, that's failing the community, that's failing the workers? Yeah. If you've got a game plan that's failing, well, you change the game plan. You don't stay on the bottom of the ladder and continue that same game plan. You, you change things. I mean... Yeah. It must be very hard to work for the EPA when you know that you've done the most... The most uh, serious thing that you can do is uh, what? What do they say? You know, slap it, slap people On across the wrist, the wrist with mm. a, a wet tram ticket. <laughs> uh, yeah, these never these, heard that one before, but <laughs> yeah. And, and these people they hit me with a wet tram there's, ticket. There's no it. such thing anymore. <laughs> no, 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 no such thing anymore. Uh, but it's well, such I a funny. Slap you with a mikey. I don't think it's quite the same. <laughs> But until there's tough penalties, until there's tough financial mm. penalties, until there's tough jail prisons for these people, I mean, they're just going to keep continuing to- storing toxic waste because they know think, they're getting away with it. Do you think that uh, sometimes the people who are running these companies, like they're uh, of the same class or like of um, the, oh, like in relationship somehow, like the capitalist system... Keep uh, keeps them in that position because well, they're more like related to the same class as the politicians, so they're helping each other. No, I think I uh, personally I don't know, but uh, waste is one of those issues that um, our society has uh, not got a handle no. on. Uh, it's okay to uh, re- rape and pillage, but yeah. uh, when it comes, it was one of the reasons for why. Um, people were so angry at the idea of uh, nuclear power and mm. uranium mining because 
they don't have a plan for the uh, getting rid of the waste that uh, is created. And and uh, just to, on that, uh, the same kind of recklessness that we've seen with this chemical, these chemical fires, and because that company Bradfield Waste, mm. they had, they had. Uh, they had a license for a hundred thousand liters. They had over four hundred and fifty thousand yep. liters of this stuff, right? And it's unnamed liters, unnamed yeah. stuff of yeah, unknown N- chemicals. Yeah, yeah. And yep. uh, all I could find was that they uh, were uh, um, processing, supposedly in inverted commas, processing the waste from uh, paint factories and people like that. Mm. So uh, when you say Processing. Where did they? Where did they put this stuff anyway? So it's a really big issue, yeah. and this is why we have governments. That's their job. That's mm. what we have them for. And to make one group of people in the northern suburbs or the western suburbs yeah. have to deal with these things is outrageous. Um, but uh, before we do finish up, did you know that uh, one of the things that uh, the Morrison government did, as before they called the election, they passed. Um, the uh, license to dig a uranium mine. Yes, in WA. Can you believe that? A huge one, yeah. It's that same level of uh, disregard for people. Yeah. But we've yeah, we've called on the uh, local council to implement their own task force, to set up a new task force. So they've got... Yeah, yeah. People on on the ground, on the beat, continually... They actually know what's going on. ...continually monitoring these facilities... uh, Paying these facilities a visit day in, day out at random, continually monitoring what chemicals are going in there. Mm. I mean, until we see that, well, I mean, really, we're just going to continue to see fires year in, year out. Well, the council seemed to think that it was all state government's problem. They didn't know anything about it. I talked to one of the councillors. He said, before he was going into that meeting, he said, oh, I live here, but I don't know anything about it either. He's on the council. Yeah, I mean, surely a local councillor's job is, is to understand the local concern and yeah. relay that up the chain to, to no, state, well, to no, state government. It, it's the state government's mm. problem, they said. Yeah. They, they're the ones who's supposed to do the job. That's I'm, what they said. Mm. I mean, it seems the all levels of government need to be working yeah. together on this. Yeah, At the end yeah. of the day, people, yeah. Are, yeah. people are getting sick. Uh, the community's being provided with and an unsafe environment. And the environment's being poisoned. The yeah. environment. I mean, I think the next step we might have to, uh, yeah... Pay a visit and have a rally on Lily D'Ambrosio's uh, doorstep. I mean, she's mm. the minister for environment. Yeah. she's the one. She needs to come and address the people of Broadmeadows yeah. and hear firsthand what the people of Broadmeadows go through year in year out. Yeah. yeah, an annual event of getting toxic chemicals dumped on them. Yeah. so I mean, these elected representatives need to step up and do the job that they were elected to do. Yeah, the money that they earn, they yes. need to earn their their. Cr- there's leaners. What is it? The leaners and the Lifters and the lifters. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the rate of pay these politicians yeah, are, and you yeah. think they'd make it their business to to come out and well, well do some of the work. The very idea what, of like yeah. representing somebody, like, I don't think that's a, well. Yeah. M- maybe we better resurrect the zombie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, well, let's move on to to Kevin. Thanks for coming in and talking to us. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Rebecca. Are we 
Olympic solidarity bricky team listener when I hope I get through this without succumbing to the nausea I've been suffering all week as the best we forget warriors forget to forget as people whose job it is to kill people were paraded as national heroes as we were told yet again our true blue Aussie values apparently are based on a military disaster invading other people's country after landing in the wrong spot although if we're invading other people's country on the orders of our current military master her most gracious majesty's home country the u.s of the u.n of the u.s of the world then is there a right place to land still good to know our values are invasion disastrous mistakes and the slaughter of millions It, it explains a lot on the right place to land, Big Supremo scuttled their Morlash son, never one to miss an opportunity to display his sincerity, told all these train killers in Townsville our train killers had fought for right. And in that we'd have to agree with him, and haven't the right made sure we never forget the critical role the merchants of death play, so they continue to play that role while extracting trillions from the public purse, so we can enjoy the freedoms of health, education, transport, housing and all those other services we can't afford to provide adequately because we must finance that absolute necessity, the merchants of death and the mindless train killers. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, got into the spirit of true blue Aussie values up in Darwin, which is sort of de facto US sub-territory, by telling us the freedoms we enjoy are down to that military disaster on the wrong beach. And in Canberra, at the ever-expanding true blue Aussie train killer memorial, the big train killer who represents Her Most Gracious Majesties told us for the 120 10,472nd time since he got the gig just how much he loves a bit of train killing. And the good news is his imminent replacement is another big train killer who just loves a bit of train killing showing we are maintaining our great true blue Aussie values. Bit of worrying perfidy, though, from one supporter of trained killing who said in a letter to the editor, despite his love of trained killing, that after 105 years, maybe, just maybe, it is time to forget, to, to let go. 105 years ago, it would have been the firing squad. And the media also proudly presented these children aged from 6 to 10 in military uniforms with the true blue Aussie slouch tat. The same media that is thankful we don't brainwash dear little children like the evil commies do. Oh, let's move on. The Norsey is overwhelming. Scuttle them also knows there's no sense in not turning the massacre of more than 300 churchgoers by mindless terrorism into a political opportunity as he did his best Jacinda Ardern impersonations, visiting a Buddhist temple, for example, and attempting to express sincerity and empathy and caring. But given he couldn't wear a hijab, well, not without looking like a bigger idiot than he is, he missed the opportunity to shave his head, don a robe and chant a few mantras.
But as he, in all sincerity, declared his concern for Sri Lankan people, again, not missing the political opportunities offered by Easter to show what a soft, cuddly clone of the dear baby Jesus he is, his commitment to dear baby Jesus' compassion, love thy neighbour, it might have been in turn an opportunity for us to ask Scuttlebim, how come you send those Sri Lankans fleeing persecution back to the persecution they are fleeing or lock them up for life on an idyllic holiday island? We can be sure he'd have a logical, compassionate answer in all sincerity. Like the Sincerity Tuesday from Lord Rupert of Wapping, Monday that Sri Lankan slaughter, a terrorism that would have been P1 blanket coverage and several inside pages had it occurred in a white Anglo-Saxon or European country, reduced to inside the book in the Wapping Sin. And I don't intend to make light of the tragic deaths and bravery Sunday in the treacherous waters of Port Campbell, where no one in their right mind would attempt to swim or surf, but that made Whopping Sin P1 ahead of the mass deaths of non-whites. Then Tuesday, after we discovered two true Blue Aussie citizens had been killed, suddenly all over P1. Easter massacre in Sri Lanka, so cruel and inside spread, they'll never be forgotten. Not that we're suggesting there's anything racist about Lord Rupert's reporting priorities, or the reporting priorities of the media generally. Mention Scuttlebeam in a hijab would look like a bigger idiot than he is. Well, speaking of bigger idiots, Barnacle. This 80 or so million dollar water buyback from a Cayman Island tax dodger, uh, sorry, sorry, respectable corporation meeting all its legal tax obligations with the now Minister for Fossils as a director, no tender process, and apart from putting it all down to the socialists, uh, how come, Barnacle, you, you were the minister? Because, like... Like, where there's no water, it's like, you know, caused by the, the socialist, commie, evil union incompetence, uh, an anti-true blue Aussie uh, uh, class warfare, and where there is, you know, like water, it's thanks to the brilliant competence uh, of the hayseed and, you know, like, sheepshit party. Right, right, I didn't know that. With no tender process, Barnacle's explanation is he had no idea of the price or who the vendor was when he signed off on the deal. Uh, hang on, not, not sure that's absolutely let him off the hook. Isn't that the equivalent to use the vernacular of signing a blank cheque with our money? I, like, signed the deal, but I had no idea what I was signing, so, like, you know, it's not my fault. Only Barnacle could think that's a reasonable explanation. Well, perhaps not only Barnacle, but Scuttle then dismissed the whole furor as history. Let's get on with the election. Other than joining Barnacle in putting the whole Murray-Darling disaster down to the socialists and declaring the socialists, uh, quote, are reduced to throwing mud, which, given the state of the river system, he, he might have phrased a bit better, like Barnacle's blank check explanation. I'd like an explanation of why we have to buy back 
public asset water in the first place, a public asset, although this latest pregnancy was only recently announced. Wonder if Barnacle's latest partner has had a new dear little baby yet, bought in the image of the dear baby Jesus, because he was obviously concerned about her and believed it was imminent during that interview where he kept interrupting and yelling, Labour, 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 showing what a caring, loving man he is. Imagine being about to get into the cot and seeing Barnacle lying there. Now, those celebrating Best We Forget Day know that peace can only be achieved by trained killing. And if war is peace, Ukraine is enjoying years of peace. And now has elected a comic actor as new president, with 70% of people voting to throw out the Supremo elected by the US of and its supporters to get rid of the bloke they effectively overthrew, declaring his election unfair because he won and supported evil Russia over the US of, and they needed the true democratic guidance of the bloke whose supporters waved swastikas. Well, now the voters have thrown him out. The US of obviously thought getting him there had done its job, and the comic actor now finds himself on the non-fiction side of the camera doing what he had done make-believe. And which of his policies appealed to you most? We asked one voter. Uh, first, uh, he wasn't the other bloke, and we know from his telly role, he was a good big supremo. Right. Uh, and what would you like him to do as first thing? We asked another voter. Oh, uh, maybe tell us his policies? Yes, the bloke won 70% of the vote with a 100% no policy campaign. Unlike the exciting choices we are so enjoying. Let's hope, listeners, scuttle them and little Billy don't get this burst of inspiration and think if a comic actor can win in Ukraine, maybe, maybe they should start cracking a few jokes. They're already such a bundle of laughs as it is. Although a bit of advice to little Billy, and I don't mean to be bodyist, but after talking a bit of train killing with the train killers in Darwin, he turned up at the footy in Melbourne, being photographed with Collingwood giant Mason Cox. From the US Arb in Darwin to the US Arb in Melbourne, but Cox so towered above the socialist dynamo, they almost needed a mobile phone each to hear each other. Although we can imagine the conversation would have been so in-depth, it wouldn't have mattered whether they could hear each other or not. Little Billy was lucky he didn't warrant an invite to the AFL's corporate food and grog do. What a disgrace to call what they'd be drinking grog and what they'd be eating mere food, but lucky because heaps of the big end of town invitees and hangers-on came down with food poisoning, whereas Scuttle Them and Little Billy are just poisoning the news cycles and will continue to do so for several more weeks, leaving us, as I said last week, in autumnal election hibernation. Little Billy's commitment to the evil unions, which formed the Socialist Party to provide a worker and union voice in the parliamentary process, is proceeding apace, with his latest commitment to the caring business class that he would give it the tools, quote, to have profitable, productive, successful enterprises, and he would not be beholden to the evil unions. Let's hope the caring employers don't fall for that three-card trick, because little Billy would never sell out the unions and workers.
Finally, as we sup at the saturation coverage this week of train killing and true blue Aussie values and freedoms, this week we can expect saturation coverage of May Day, of workers' interests, mass promotion of the May Day march and international May Day coverage, photos of dear little children wearing union badges and waving union banners. Can't wait. Good morning. Join Self for Justice Launch and Pedal Out from 10 a.m. on Saturday, 4th of May, on St. Kilda Beach, Bunurong Country. Manus, here we come. Bring your own flotation devices to pedal out or join a day sail from St. Kilda to Sandringham. Wake up, wake up, it's time for action. 11 a.m., Original Nations Passport Ceremony. 12 p.m., Barbecue and Yarn. 1 p.m., Music. 2 p.m. lunch and pedal out, 3 to 4 p.m. More music? This event takes place on the stolen territory of Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty never ceded. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, 4th of May, on St. Kilda Beach. For more information, go to saleforjustice.org. Sale number 4, justice.org. Sale for Justice is a Tricia supporter. Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. I love that song. Mm, yeah. So good. <laughs> MIA. Yeah. Yeah. Solidarity Breakfast. This is Annie and Rebecca. You went to this particular event at Marxism that we're going to play a snippet from. Yeah. Yeah. It. So uh, the Tamil Refugee Council um, yeah, put on this forum to have a discussion about what's happening now um, with the struggle of the Tamil people uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, 10 years on from uh, the end of the war uh, and, yeah, just all of the horrific things that happened during that um, war, uh, but also, yeah, talking about what's been happening to people afterwards, um, yeah, because the oppression and the now, I guess, what... what uh, People would term like a slow motion genocide is taking place now. Um, yeah, without uh, the gaze of the international community. And yeah, so uh, we're going to hear from Ben Hillier um, a bit, a bit of background and the context of what's happening um, now. And Ben is the uh, one of the editors of, of Red Flag. Red Flag, yeah. On the beach in Mulibaikal, it's a small stretch of land between the Bay of Bengal and uh, the Nandikal Lagoon in, north, in the northeast of 
the island in the heartlands of where the, the Tamil Tigers had their uh, strategic operations. Uh, ten years after, don't do that, sorry. Ten years after the, the fall of the, the Tigers, ten years after the end of the, uh, the bloody war launched by the Sri Lankan military against the civilians, uh, the Tiger leadership in Cadiz, uh, ten years later, if you walk to that beach, you can still see the craters in the ground from the mortars. You can still see the remnants of the bunkers that were dug uh, with people's bare hands and what, whatever um, hose or pieces of wood or tin they could uh, get to. Uh, they could get to their possession. There are still uh, tangled sari scraps. There are shoes. There, there are t-shirts. Discarded items. Uh, ten years after a horrific premeditated extermination was unleashed by the Sri Lankan government against a largely defenceless population and the remnants of a, 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 a Tiger army that by this stage was uh, almost utterly leaderless, headless and had suffered uh, disastrous losses in the preceding months. Um, this was uh, one of the most horrific genocidal offensives that we've seen in the 21st century, leaving, as Lee said, 40,000, 70,000 uh, dead on the beaches and, and slightly inland, and tens of thousands of people still unaccounted for, disappeared, for whom the campaigns continue uh, for answers from the government about what exactly happened to people after this offensive had been finished, when people surrendered. Uh, were taken in trucks and vans, marched to prison camps and disappeared, never to be seen again. Uh, when you go to this place, despite all of the uh, horror that is still etched into the earth, uh, one of the most noticeable uh, aspects in this area is a large, sprawling uh, naval base to the south, uh, covering several square kilometres, one of the largest bases in the country. And it's, it's named after a man called Godabaya, who was the brother of the then President Mahinda Rajapaksa. Uh, he was in charge of the armed forces overseeing the genocide. And he now has a, a base named after him in the homelands of the inland Tamils. The most noticeable thing when you are in the north today is not uh, the, the existence of dead bodies or mass graves, although the graves are there somewhere. It's the existence of the military bases everywhere across the north. In some areas, you cannot go 10 kilometres without running into another military installation. And this is a very small uh, island. The, the island itself of Sri Lanka is uh, about the size of Tasmania, possibly slightly smaller. Uh, the Elam homelands in the north and the east uh, constitute maybe 40%, 30% of the total land. But in the north of the country, about 75% of the Sri Lankan military uh, is now stationed. And that's a military that has somewhere between two and 300,000 soldiers. The great crime uh, that, uh, that was carried out 10 years ago uh, of the, the killings, the disappearance, uh, the mutilations, uh, the rapes, the torture and everything else that went with it uh, has now uh, been morphed into uh, another crime. And it's a, it's, it's a much more silent crime 
Uh, and it's a much more insidious genocide that is going on today. That there are still uh, excesses, as they may say, on the other side, in terms of disappearances, uh, there are still assaults, there are still tortures, there are still assassinations going on. But the occupation of Tamil lands has morphed into a much more peaceful suffocation. Uh, and, and by that I mean when the Tamil Tigers existed, they created a wall that held back uh, the vast majority of the colonisation schemes that held out the military um, for some time, particularly in the northern Vani region. Now that they've been wiped out, uh, the colonial process from the south has accelerated. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, as Lee talked about with the, the colonisation, uh, one, one of the ways that the Sinhalese majority, which wasn't really about the majority of Sinhalese, it was about the, the political elites and the religious clerics uh, who believe the island to be uh, only an island of Sinhalese and Buddhists. Uh, from the very beginning, they instituted colonisation schemes to try and break down the demographics of the Tamil areas in the east and the north. And the way they, they talk about it, um, it's very similar... Uh, the way they talk about Tamils, I should say, it's very similar if people here, under left here, has some appreciation of the occupation of Palestine and the way that the Zionists uh, designate Palestinians. It's actually incredibly similar, the way that the, the Sinhalese chauvinists talk about the, the nature of Sri Lanka. They say that they are, despite being an 80% majority on the island, they say they're a besieged minority in a holy land that belongs only to them. Uh, besieged in the sense that across the Polk Strait in the southern state of uh, Tamil Nadu in India, there are another 80 million Tamils. And the, and the, the Sinhalese chauvinists in Sri Lanka say that all Tamils belong in Tamil Nadu and that any Tamil on the island of Sri Lanka is in effect a fifth column seeking to undermine the holy land of uh, their particular Buddhist faith. So part of the colonisation schemes was to dilute, and to this day is, to dilute uh, Tamil-majority areas, to change the demographics... Uh, to put wedges in what is Tamil Elam, to, uh, to break up the contiguity of the territory. And since the fall of the Tigers, this has been proceeding at pace. Uh, Lee mentioned that uh, it's it, not just the colonisation schemes, but also the similarisation, i.e. the putting up of the Buddhist monuments, the desecration of Hindu monuments, the bulldozing of the old Tamil... Uh, Tiger uh, areas, uh, so sorry, the um, cemeteries, uh, the military occupation of old Tamil lands that, that continues, uh, the suffocation of the economy under military rule, the uh, the which extends not only to farmers but to fisher people, who are pushed further and further towards the coast because. Indian and uh, southern trawlers uh, patrolling the areas to get the best fish and the most of them uh, are, are actually bleeding the uh, fishing the place dry and pushing farmers into poverty. It's even in Jaffna, which is in the north and is the, the cultural capital of uh, Tamil <coughs> Iran, there uh, the 
amount of, uh, I, I, was, I was told when I was there two years ago, the amount of Sinhalese capital that has been flowing in and constricting the ability for, of Tamils to form their own businesses, another way whereby they are attempting to strangle uh, the Tamil nation. Economically, culturally and through, uh, through demographic transformation and through the land uh, the ongoing land occupations. All of these make for something that in, in West Papua it's called a silent genocide. It's, it's something resembling a silent genocide when you cannot go, as I said, 10 kilometres without finding a new military base and when you've got these colonisation schemes going on thick and fast, uh, there is a, an entire attempt to undermine the very basis of the Tamil nation. Now that has not succeeded, but the longer this process goes on, uh, the more it undermines the, the national claims of Tamils and the more, uh, the, the more the nation becomes suffocated under the weight of state-backed uh, uh, appropriations. That is one of the most, as far as I can tell, that is one of the, the most dangerous um, uh, results of the fall of the Tigers. Uh, because when at least you had a national liberation struggle that was fighting for <coughs> national rights, uh, you had what was basically a bulwark against these schemes. And that bulwark existed really from the late 1970s all the way through to 2009. It put a tremendous break on the speed or even the ability of the Sri Lankan state and its uh, and the particular chauvinist uh, Buddhist clerical order, which was at the forefront of attempting to break up the Tamil nation, put a tremendous break on that. Uh, and without that resistance, then it is a slow and steady, as I say, suffocation. And I think that it's that's not going to go away without a fight. And it's, it hasn't been successful at this point, as um, comrades have said. But I think it is worth, in the context of that, seeing what the Sri Lankan government's project, since independence in 1948, of the eradication of Tamil Elam, uh, the eradication of the Tamil nation, um, the suffocation of the North and Sinhalese dominance, it's important in, in viewing that to see the role that the Tigers play. Um, I think when you look at... Because I, th I think a defence of the Tamil Tigers um, is absolutely necessary when you see what they were able to achieve, regardless of whether or not you agree with their particular politics, as, as Lee said. Their rise in the 1970s came in the context of utter failure on the part of the major uh, Tamil political parties uh, to, to gain even one concession out of the central government in Palama. Uh, a lot of them, uh, lot, the Tamil leadership were older, they were moderates, they believed that if they could only get a seat at the table with the Sinhalese chauvinists in the south, that they would be able to get some crumbs off the table to help protect some of the people in the north. They failed dismally. It came in the context of uh, a, a radicalising uh, a, a Buddhist clergy and an increasingly chauvinist set of governments after independence 
who were turning the screws on the Tamil population through a whole series of legal and constitutional changes to make Tamils second-class citizens. And it came, importantly, in the context of the left-wing parties of the South, some of, historically, the biggest um, far-left organisations in in terms of the the size of the population that existed anywhere in the world. A a huge communist, Trotskyist, far-left, radical, Maoist, a whole series of different currents. All, all of which, in their own turn, failed dismally on the national question when it came to the Tamils. They either, they, they either capitulated or were ignorant or turned into some of the most vicious chauvinists themselves. In the context of these three events and, and the international forces that were lining up to maintain the integrity of what was called the unitary state, i.e. a state that was built by and for Sinhalese um, and, and Buddhists and against the Tamils, it is, it is, you would have to be very hard-pressed to make a case that the young, radicalising Tamil youth in the north, uh, led by, at that time by Velapillai, Prabhakaran and others, it, you'd be hard-pressed to see how they could have seen another way out. They had zero allies uh, on, in the island and they had almost zero allies internationally. They turned to the armed struggle because every other avenue that had presented itself had been closed or shown to be uh, a trick or a traitor or a fraud. So the beginning of the armed struggle came not simply out of as what the West would call a terrorist bloodlust. It was wholly defensive, um, wholly defensive against every enemy that they faced. And it was wholly successful in mobilising a significant proportion of the population into a national liberation movement that that could endure for 30 years to prevent the ongoing civilisation of the North and significantly hold it back in the East. So the rise of the Tigers and what they were able to achieve under incredibly difficult circumstances, I think is something that uh, people on the left... Uh, should celebrate rather than deride or hold. Uh, I mean, people can be obviously hold critical support, but when you look at the conditions under which people were fighting, uh, I think the Tamil Tigers did a tremendous service to the people who were backing them. And, and many of the lies that uh, an incredible amount of lies when you look at it, whether it's that they were terrorists, whether using human shields, whether or not recruiting child soldiers, a whole bunch of things which are absolute distortions from an organisation that had the backing of a significant portion of the population in the North, precisely because they were part of the population of the North. Most families in the North uh, had family members who were in the Tigers because the Tigers had established that you could have a semblance of peace and security under their rule, which you would not get without them being there to defend against the incursions from the south. And I think that's very important. One of the things that comrades say um, in terms of the international uh, slanders against the Tigers, I'll just note one before I hand over to Aaron. I felt like I need to make a defence of the the Tigers today. Um, One of the, the, the great slanders... Uh, and, and it was, it's not just a slander, it was a weapon used against the Tigers from 2002. It was, it was the question of the use of child soldiers. If you read anything about the peace process in Sri Lanka, 
Um, you'll, you'll read all about the use of child soldiers by the Tamil Tigers and the international community's uh, attempts, along with the Sri Lankan government and NGOs, to stop this practice. This practice, this is not a practice. If you talk to any of the Tigers who, who were recruited, the Tamil Tigers were born as a youth radicalisation. Most of the people who joined the Tigers joined when they were 14, 15, 16. They fought because they wanted to defend themselves and their country. And they fought to become Tigers against the wishes of the more conservative forces. So most of the people who were joining were joining because they wanted to fight. And other people were not doing the fighting. And particularly women comrades in the Tigers who, when I was there two years ago, you speak to the ex-Cater... They talked about the, the problems and the difficulties some of them had with their own families. They wanted to defend themselves and their families, who are older and more conservative, were not willing to fight. So it was the young people who were fighting. And when the international community came in and said, you cannot have child soldiers, they were attempting to cut the tigers off at the base because it was a youth movement. And when the international community said we are going to have regulations around the recruitment of child soldiers, they had, and they had a duplicitous, um, uh, well, a double standard, I should say. They said that if you're a state actor, you may not forcibly recruit anyone under the age of 18. They said if you're a non-state actor, you may not have anyone under the age of 18. So, effectively, they said, the Sri Lankan government can conscript 16-year-olds... But young radical Tamils are not allowed to join the Tigers. That's how they used the, the issue of child recruitment from 2002 all the way through to the restarting of the war in 2006, the three years, uh, the three years of which led to the utter obliteration of the Tiger leadership and the leading cadres under the auspices of the international community who all watched it happen packed up their bags and left when the war started, came back in when the war ended, tut-tutted a bit, but all then rallied around the idea of a unitary state and the government. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, so we've got Umesh uh, here with us uh, from Tamil Manifest, and maybe you, ha- you have like three minutes or less to um, quickly uh, maybe... Yeah, to- tell us what you think about what's been happening in Sri Lanka the last week. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah. yeah, so as I think, as as you mentioned, there's um, this uh, screening of no fire zone coming up. There's also a um, uh, a demonstration uh, in the military occupation of Tamil homeland ten years on uh, from the massacres uh, on May 18. So that's only a few weeks away, but uh, just last week, there was this, this massive attack. It's interesting this attack because, as we were pointing out, um, the, these these attacks are against two minority, uh, involving mm. two minority groups in Sri Lanka. Yeah. So you've got uh, Christians being bombed by so-called a Muslim mm-hmm. cell. Th- this is rather peculiar. Yeah. So it's um, people are scratching their heads to try and understand why this happened. Because they thought a more logical, uh, a more logical uh, uh, target of attack would be 
the singular Buddhist groups that have been attacking Muslims in the last few years. But to attack this Christian group that who they haven't had uh, any direct conflicts as far as I know um, seems utterly um, unfathomable. And one one notion might be something to do with uh, the government's desire to pass certain legislation around anti um, terrorism, anti terrorism yeah. laws. I so, mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So there there was. A push um, for for the government to drop this very uh, repressive Prevention of Terrorism Act, which is which has been compared historically to the South Africa's similar legislation as one of the most uh, apartheid yeah, mm. ap- appalling pieces. Yeah, apartheid South Africa's um, anti-terrorism legislation. So there was a lot of push on on this, and you and you see now uh, the president and also the the opposition candidate uh, who's just announced Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Uh, who used to be the defence secretary in two thousand and nine? Yeah. Ben uh, just mentioned how they've got a uh, some kind of military installation named after him. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, so that guy. Uh, so he's put his head in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's just announced he's running for president at the end of this year, and he said, "I'm going to beef up the security state and and increase our mm. intelligence forces." But also, the current president has said this happened because uh, this government has been relentlessly prosecuting our our military for war crimes which is completely false oh, so that ridiculous so this is the background to what's happened to ju- just uh these bombings this is well, a background so that that scenario that, that's the the response to these bombings mm. so in in the wake of these bombings people are, are saying this there's also been a, a uptick in anti-muslim attacks um, yeah reports of people being pulled out of their houses and beaten up i haven't heard of any deaths but a number of Muslim-owned uh, shops have been um, burnt. Okay, and yeah. and which and because we have to finish, we should point out, of course, that uh, uh, Tamils are traditionally either Hindu or Christian. So it's yes. yeah, it's just so that people don't muddy the waters. And uh, yeah, maybe you can tune in later today to Tamil Manifest to hear more. Thanks. Great. Thanks for talking to us. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.